Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner. Once again, Mike, we're going to look at two books in the Old Testament, two prophets, two minor prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. It's always helpful to understand the context, the historical context. What's going on? Where where are they and what's going on? These two prophets are what we call post-exilic prophets. Oh. Bit of a mouthful, isn't it? Post-exilic, after the exile. So let's just recap the quick history of God's people as they came into the promised land, became established under King David and then King Solomon. After Solomon's death, the nation split into two because of the folly of his son to become a nation in the north, Israel, a nation in the south, Judah, never to come back together again. That nation in the north eventually came under the judgment of God because of their repeated disobedience when it was conquered in 721 B.C., by Assyria. The nation in the south was warned the same will happen to us unless we changed. They'd said, no, it can't possibly happen to us. God is with us. And anyway, we've got Jerusalem and the temple. And the prophets had said, no, judgment really is coming unless we change and repent and live out our faith. And eventually it did come in the form of the next great empire that had grown up, Babylon. And in 586 B.C., Babylon had not only conquered Jerusalem, but taken God's people into exile. And they were there, well, from the very first people who'd gone in with some of the earliest deportations before the destruction of Jerusalem for the 70 years that Jeremiah had prophesied. And then in 539 BC, another major event happened in world history. We've seen so far two great empires, Assyria Babylon. Now, just as Assyria had outstretched itself and collapsed internally, so the same happens to Babylon. And Persia, one of those nations within inside that old empire, now becomes the dominant power. And in 539 BC, Persia conquers Babylon. Suddenly, the Babylonian Empire is now the Persian Empire. But there's a big shift. The ruler of Persia, a guy called King Cyrus, is what we would call today a benevolent despot. So he ruled with a rod of iron, but he also believed that if his people and his empire was happy, then that would produce stability and peace and it would be easier for them. Uh, but he still kept an iron grip, by the way. And so when he took over the empire, he issued a decree that we've actually got records of uh, in the Bible itself, and he allowed all the conquered peoples who had been deported to Babylon to go back to their original homes if they so desired. And so the following year, in 538 BC, a bunch of Jews set off, not all of them by any means, quite a small Number We can read about that in the early chapters of Ezra, set off for home and by 537 BC had started to rebuild the temple. But they'd met opposition from the people who'd settled in the land and got established in the land who didn't want them rebuilding their temple, didn't want them becoming the nation that they had been and so they opposed them harassed hindered them 
And the exiles got completely discouraged. And as a result of that, the building work on the temple came to a standstill, as we read about in Ezra chapter 4. And for the next 15 years, absolutely nothing happened. The work on the temple that they'd been so eager to start on stopped. And that's where our first prophet comes into the picture. Because in 520 BC, 15 years after the work had stopped, God speaks to Haggai, gives him a prophetic word. We've got the date of it in our calendars. We're told it in Haggai chapter 1, verse 1, the 29th of August, 520 BC. He brings his first prophetic word. And really the whole of Haggai's ministry is about, come on, guys. We can do this. I know you've got discouraged. Where are your priorities? Let's get this done. So it's very much directed at them and for them to reignite them, really, in what they're there for. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what had happened is, as the years have passed by, and remember, they're constantly facing harassment and opposition, and, and it's been really tough even getting the temple started and we find in chapter one that the people were saying uh, the time has not yet come to build the Lord's house. Now, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Because just a few years earlier, they were absolutely convinced the time had come. Mm. But it's funny how we can sort of change our perspective, isn't it? When things don't work out like we had thought, well, maybe it's just not the right time. I, you know, I'm sure we'll build the temple eventually. But, you know, the time's obviously uh, just not yet come. And what have they then ended up? focusing on instead well they'd ended up focusing on their own houses instead so it really was an issue of priorities so for me Haggai's a prophet really about challenging priorities where are our priorities who's going to come first in our lives is it self and our own needs and desires or is it going to be God is God going to come first and so he, he goes on to challenge them when they say it's not the right time he says well you know okay so it's the right time for you building your houses but not god's house hello how does that work and actually guys if you would just look at your own economic situation at the moment this is really interesting, and I think it still speaks to us today because in chapter one he says give careful thought to your ways you have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them into a purse with holes. I mean, it's like a picture there of inflation. So you're prioritizing yourselves, but can you see this is not working? Because in prioritizing yourselves, you've still never got enough money, you've never got enough clothes, you've never got enough for your home, uh, your crops are still not what they ought to be. Can you not see a message here? It's because you've got your priorities wrong. So think about your ways and get up there and get the material for God's house and complete God's house. The phrases in the back of my mind, which you hear people talk about, maybe it needs explaining, is the prosperity gospel. 
And isn't that something to do with the implication that if you do what you seem to be saying, the prophet is saying, then you will be blessed, all will be well. Yeah, I, I think his message is more about priorities than prosperity. If you want me to be honest, I feel the prosperity gospel is something of a perversion of the gospel. It is that, putting it in a nutshell, if we will only give money to God, or very often if we will only give money to the person of God who's making the appeal on the TV program at that time, then money will come rolling back to us. Give away in order to get. That's not the principle behind giving. You give away, why? Because it's right to be generous. Now, in my experience, I've discovered again and again that when you give away, God never leaves you short. And I've certainly experienced many times in my own life when my wife and I have, have given away, whether it's money or a thing, and hey, we've suddenly discovered the provision in another direction. But we give away not to get. We give away because it is right to give. And so his challenge here is not so much... If only you would start giving away and putting God's temple first and getting it, you would end up with better houses and clothing. He, he's inverting the argument and saying it's because your priorities are wrong and you are focusing on number one that things just aren't working out. And, and so it's a priorities rather than a prosperity issue that he's challenging here. So how do the people respond to Haggai's challenge? Well, they, they do respond and get on with the work that he wants them to do. But they're still somewhat discouraged because, you know, the temple's nothing like, frankly, the previous one had been that fabulous temple that Solomon had want them to build. So in chapter two, he has to say to them, look, I know the temple may not look much now, certainly in comparison to the glory of the former one. But you know what? God has made a covenant with us as his people and glory will come to this house again. He's got this little phrase in chapter two of I will shake the nations and the desired of all nations will come and I'll fill this house with glory. Now, some people think that's a, a messianic reference. Trouble is the Hebrew word there is plural, the desired things of the nation. So it's probably more likely that he's saying even the nations will bring their wealth here at one point and the glory of God will be seen once again and there will be blessing back on this land and on this people. It does all sound conditional. The change won't come unless you change. Yeah, exactly. And uh, we've said many times in this series that you know, prophecies, they're, they're not magic. <laughs> they are indications of what God wants to do, what is in his heart, and they do require us to, to respond to it. And there's an interesting section in uh, the second half of chapter 2 where Haggai underlines to them that being back in the holy land does not make them a holy people. <laughs> Quite an interesting thought. And he has this little analogy about how uncleanness is transmitted much more easily than holiness. He uses uh, some priestly examples and examples from the law of how ritual unholiness could be passed on. 
And out of that says, you know, okay, we are back in the holy land, but being back in the holy land does not make us a holy people. It's changing our lives that makes us a holy people. So come on, guys, let's not just build a temple. So he's not just temple focused. It's not just about the building, which, you know, churches have never got caught up in, have they? Just being concerned about the building. It's not just about the building. It is about who we are as a people. And there is hope. In fact, he ends up by describing um, Zerubbabel, uh, who is the governor of Judah at this time, describing him as the Lord's signet ring. There's a hope there for the future. He says, tell Zerubbabel that I'll shake the heavens and the earth and overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. I'll overthrow chariots and their drivers, etc. And on that day, I'll take you, my servant Zerubbabel, declares the Lord, and make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you. So there is hope there for the future. It may be a difficult time now, guys, but come on, let us keep trusting God. Let us not just build the temple, but build our lives in godly ways. And there is most certainly hope for the future. And I guess that personal word for Zerubbabel, you said he was like the governor, so he was a leader. Leadership can be lonely. It was important that he had that word of encouragement. That's a really good insight, David, because you're right. Uh, I mean, any leaders at any level, uh, whether in the church or in the secular sphere, will know that leadership can be uh, lonely at times. But I think there's nothing more reassuring than stopping at those moments when your leadership is going through a difficult time and perhaps people are not responding or challenging you just to go back and say, did God put me here? Did God speak? Well, if so, then I'm a signet ring on his hand and I'm secure and I'm close to him and I just need to hang on in there until things come round. Well, let's move on to the other book of Zechariah, which follows on from Haggai in the Bible. Who was Zechariah? Uh, well, we're told that Zechariah was both a prophet and a priest. He'd been born in Babylon. So he was one of those who were born during the exile. But he returned in 538 BC along with Zerubbabel, who we've just been talking about, and Joshua, the high priest. So he's a contemporary of Haggai, who we've just been talking about. But his ministry continues much longer. So it's probably around sort of 520 to 480 BC. He's described in chapter 2, verse 4, as a young man. So he's still pretty young when his ministry begins. But interesting then, just to be clear, he's in Babylon. He's been born in Babylon, grown up in Babylon, a thousand miles away from his Jewish roots, if you like. Never been to Jerusalem before. So a very different sort of situation to what we've probably been looking at with other Yeah, prophets. amazing, isn't it? So many of the other prophets we've seen were, they were born in Judah or Israel, and that's where they ministered. Here's a guy who has a passion for what God is doing, and he's only ever heard about it. He's only ever heard the stories. He would have been taught and trained, obviously, but he'd never seen it with his own eyes. He'd never been back there because he was born in exile, and yet he carries this passion 
and a passion not just about what God is doing in the there and then, but but about what God is going to do in the future. In fact, his book really falls into sort of two pretty clear halves. So the first eight chapters really are all uh, about his, well, it's his call to be a prophet, but then his first prophetic words of encouragement for people at that time. So they're, they're words for there and then. But the second part of his book, chapters 9 to 14, are really words for the future, both a pretty immediate future, but a future that will stretch all way ahead. And he'll be one of these prophets who even sees pretty specific things about the coming Messiah. Oh, we'll come on to that in a moment. But let's look at this sort of first half then, if you like, and how he became a prophet and, and, and the kind of messages he was getting, if you like, from, from God. Yeah, so in the first half of the book, uh, in chapters 1 to 8, we get, well, he gets a series of eight nighttime visions that are explained to him. And some of these visions uh, contain promises that, that many Christians will be very familiar with. But they're all encouragement. So vision one, a, a man among a myrtle trees, giving reassurance that this is all really about God's sovereignty. He hears that the whole world is at rest and at peace. Well, it actually was because of the iron grip of Persia. And that begs the question, how long? And he hears, don't worry, God is committed to rebuilding Jerusalem. In the second one, he has a picture of four horns and four craftsmen. The four horns represent the surrounding nations, but he sees that their work's going to be overthrown by the four craftsmen, probably symbolizing those who are working on the temple. And this is all about in rebuilding the temple and rebuilding our lives. This is part of God overthrowing that which stands against him. His third vision, a, a picture of a man with a measuring line in which he sees that Jerusalem will be so big, uh, he describes it as a city without walls. Uh, so that's both size and, of course, security. You only needed walls to protect you. So big that there would be room for everyone and, and all those in exile are invited to join those who are there. This is an appeal. Come on, this is a big thing that God is doing. Come and join us. In the fourth vision, he sees the high priest being given clean garments. He's being cleansed for service in the new temple. And it's a, a sign and an anticipation of what he calls my branch, the servant. He's already getting ooh, one of those little flash forwards that we've talked about before. And a promise that one day... God will do something through an even greater high priest when he will remove the sin of the land in a single day. Well, looking ahead there to Jesus, the great high priest. In the fifth picture, a gold lampstand and two olive trees, symbol of a, an endless supply of oil. And Zerubbabel is told that he will build the temple. And here's a word that many listeners will know, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. You, you can't do this in your own strength. The task is too great. There is only one day way you can do God's work, and that is by God's spirit. A word there still for us today, by the way. We cannot do God's work 
in our strength and in our resources. We need to do it by God's spirit. His sixth vision, a flying scroll like a, a banner in the sky that's declaring the curses of the covenant that will bring judgment on those who don't live by God's law. The seventh, a really weird one, a woman in a basket representing wickedness. But that basket and that woman is going to be carried away to Babylon by two more women with wings. And then finally, the eighth one, a picture of four chariots representing God's army that goes out in all directions to subdue the nations. Now, a quick overview there, but the feel of that, and it all builds up one after the other. And I know these are hard times, but God is doing something. God is going somewhere. He's going to do it by his spirit. We are going to get there. Come on, let's keep going. I was going to say, I mean, one vision like that would have been quite something, but time after time, eight visions you know, the symbolism is remarkable. It's sort of spectacular imagery, isn't it? Yes, it is. And that's one of the things about this prophet. His imagery is very, very vivid, very graphic. And, and in the second part, it becomes even more graphic and, and vivid as well. And, and some of it becomes what we call apocalyptic, using well-known symbols to communicate God's truth. So, yeah, th this was a guy who who saw things vividly and powerfully and some of the energy and passion and, and encouragement out of that comes out in those chapters. If you were to sort of sum up those eight visions, <laughs> what's the sort of the theme, would you say, that comes through loud and clear? There's an interesting little verse right in the opening part uh, in chapter one, verse three, return to me and I'll return to you. And I think in some ways that sums it up. If only we will come back to God. I know we've come back to the land, <laughs> but we also need to come back to God. And if only we will come back to God, God promises he's going to come back to us. And for me, I think that simple little verse sums up so much of what this is. If we will come back to God, God is going to come back to his powerfully. He's going to take the opportunity of the earth being at peace at the moment, as it was under the Persian rule. And he is going to help us rebuild this temple. And he is going to equip our priests to do the work that they need to do. And this city is going to grow. And we can only do this by God's spirit, but he will get rid of wickedness and it will be carried away. But God is doing something here. But return to me and I will return to you. And these are some of the incredible things that God will then do for us. And did the people perhaps need that degree of encouragement because of the discouragement they were getting from the people around them? Yeah, I think absolutely so. You see, as well as the discouragement around them, if you think back to the great prophets who'd prophesied before the exile, what they had said, think of prophets like Isaiah. He had prophesied that when they came back from exile, there would be a glorious future. I mean, some of those visions from Isaiah 40 onwards, and particularly then in the latter chapters of Isaiah, has this glorious returning people and God's kingdom established on the earth, and it hadn't happened. You know, I suppose all of us have faced times when we felt God gave us a promise, and maybe we've seen a bit of the promise, but it hasn't quite worked out as fully as we thought or as we'd hoped. 
And what's the easiest thing to happen at that moment? Well, it's for a discouragement to set in and we go, oh, don't we? And there's that sort of spiritual flop and, and sigh. I, I've experienced that in, in my own life. So not only is there opposition from people, in a sense, that can be overcome. I mean, Ezra and Nehemiah were great at doing that. Put your heads down, lads, and get on with it. <laughs> but it was the sort of inner spiritual discouragement that things hadn't worked out as glorious as they had hoped. And so what Zechariah is saying is, I know it hasn't at the moment, but keep hold of God, keep hold of his promises, because God will do what he has promised to do. Keep trusting God, keep obeying his word. Let's complete the temple as the, the first step in that, in anticipation of the glorious coming of God to establish his kingdom that he will most definitely bring about, that he then starts to touch on in the second half of his book. So they really are just part of a much bigger picture. And those flash-forwards that you mentioned then, I mean, w what is Zechariah hinting at or revealing? Well, he's revealing something pretty amazing. If I were to sum up the sort of the second half of the book, it's really all about the great messianic future that is coming and the full realisation of God's kingdom. So in chapter 8, he promises to bless Jerusalem and in 9 to judge his enemies through God's coming king. But, but the heart of these chapters is that God is going to come in person to do this. So in chapter 11, we get this prophecy where uh, we see that Judah's shepherds, their leaders, had failed them and had led the flock to being marked for slaughter. In other words, going into exile. And therefore, God himself comes to shepherd the flock. And so in these chapters, there's this picture of God himself coming. It's mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing. Now, of course, Jews expected that, that God was going to come one day. Uh, they, they did believe it. He would come. Uh, he would come through his Messiah and set up his kingdom on earth, and he would be there at the center of all things again. But what is amazing is that in this second part of the book, Zechariah prophesies in some most incredible ways events in the life of the one we now know to be Jesus, God, come into this world. So, I mean, here's some of the very specific things. He prophesies Jesus' triumphal entry as king into Jerusalem when he rode in on the donkey on Palm Sunday in Zechariah 9.9. He prophesies his betrayal for 30 pieces of silver in Zechariah 11.12. That's specific. It's as specific as that. He prophesies that he will be pierced in Zechariah 12.10. Of course, Jesus' hands and legs were pierced. Uh, he prophesies that when that had happened, uh, his followers would all scatter in Zechariah 13.7. Now, anyone who knows the gospel story will know how very accurately these are fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jesus. But he sees not just like events, he also sees in his flash forward the significance of these events. 
Uh, Here's a powerful one in uh, chapter 13, verse 1. He says, On that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. We've already talked about the verse that talks about cleansing in a single day. So he's seeing that when God comes in this person he has seen in so much detail, his coming will lead to us being cleansed from all our sin and all our impurity. And then in chapter 14, he has this vision of, despite that Jerusalem being attacked and surrounded, but God will fight it, conquer his enemies, bring in his new creation. He uses very graphic imagery there, by the way, that's steeped in Old Testament stories, lots of imagery from creation and the Exodus. And he ends by saying, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. So he's gone from the discouragement of people living there in the Holy Land after the return because of one, yes, the opposition, but two, the lack of fulfillment they felt to taking them beyond just the immediate encouragement to looking ahead to the day when, because God's leaders have failed his people, God himself will come. We know that to happen in the person of Jesus. And this person who comes through being pierced will shed his blood and will cleanse us from all our sins. Zachariah, therefore, has a vision that is not just about then, it stretches right out to us today and it's a message that is still as relevant for us today. God loves us enough to come for us in the person of Jesus who gave his life for us to not only cleanse our sins and put us right with God, but through that to invite us into his family and to join him in his great purpose of what he is building throughout the earth. And that, it seems to me, is an incredible, exciting invitation and opportunity. Mike Bowman has been talking to David Taverner. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation. This is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, check out the website at ucb.co.uk.